the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. I am Seth Leibson. It is a delight to have the Hallmans, plus one more Hallman. We have a Hallman trio today, which is great, welcoming Eli Hallman to the studio. Uh, uh, dear as friend. As our, uh, our live uh, studio audience. As part of our live studio audience. Yes, exactly. That other voice you hear is Hugh Hallman, the Pater Familias. And Lewis Holman, as per usual, the managing director of Insight Analytics LLC. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hugh Holman is the former mayor of D.C., (laughs) former mayor of Tempe, and— Once occupant of D.C. Once occupant of D.C. and an attorney in town, among so many other things. Well, gentlemen, um, (laughs) I guess the Chinese say me you live in interesting times. They're actually uh, scary times, uh, frightening times, pregnant times— Cominatory times. Who wants to start? Lewis gets to start on the your fact that you opened with uh, concepts uh, emanating from China. Okay. But before we get there, I did want to do two things sure. about the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, that were I thought fascinating. Um, during the uh, extra period, when the game was tied, and for the first time in Super Bowl history, the new concept of overtime was run. And as the uh, lead official said, this is a new game, and they started. And uh, San Francisco started with the ball, uh, having elected that, and ended up uh, yielding to uh, uh, the Chiefs. And something occurred in the Chiefs' drive that I thought was fascinating and indicative of why lots of sort of red side folks appreciate the Chiefs. And it was this. Uh, the Chiefs having ha- were put in a position they had to score in this drive under the overtime rules. And Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, ended up in a position unusual where he had a fourth down and short, and they had to go ahead and try to get a first down in order to continue their drive. Had they failed in that first down, they would have lost the game. The ball would have turned back over to San Francisco, and that's under the rules for this new concept for overtime, would have yielded the ball back to San Francisco. And I turned to my wife as we're watching, and I said, Patrick Mahomes is going to run the ball. Why? Because he's going to take personal responsibility as the quarterback for that team, and it will be on his head whether they win or lose, that if he fails in this drive, it will be on his head and not one of his other teammates. And that is what I thought was an interesting insight into what makes that team successful and great and why Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback is quite successful. He takes personal responsibility. You see it in how he conducts himself on the field and how he ran that play. He indeed ran the ball, made the first down, and ultimately they completed uh, the drive for a touchdown and won the game. Uh, that I thought was insightful into how what makes this country great and what I think really drives a lot of us towards why we try to achieve what we achieve uh, on the side we achieve. Second thing was the ad I did not expect 
Robert Kennedy's ad for yeah. president. It's pretty good, wasn't it? It was interesting. Okay. I thought it was a fascinating playoff of his father or uh, uncle. And more interesting, I did think it was a mistake that they didn't drive home why this ad was running. It was so subtle. If you're a Super Bowl fan watching the game, not the commercials like some of us, that you didn't see enough in that ad to tell you this is Robert Kennedy running as an independent for president of the United States. Those three pieces had to be stated, and there was so much sort of fun nostalgia to it that you didn't really understand what the heck's going on. That's my thoughts. Did you pick up on that, young David? Not so much. No. Okay. Yes. What'd you think of the Patrick Mahomes comment there, young David? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Exactly. Or the helmet. Or the helmet. In this case. Oh. No comment, David? I just have to note personally that, uh, you know, listening to, to Dad pontificate about football is, is uh, something I, I never thought I, I would hear. So may you live in interesting times indeed, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> My Everyone father told has me Seth, to watch yeah. the ball game that day, so I was watching golf. I yeah, exactly. He didn't know which ball to yeah. watch. <laughs> uh, uh, in fairness, my father was, as Seth knows, not only a math teacher and a great trumpet player, but a, the reason he taught math, he would tell me as a child, was because he loved to coach. And he coached football, basketball, track, wrestling, every every sport uh, that was offered at Arcadia High and before that at other, uh, at other schools. And so that's, it just rubbed off on me. But there you have it, Lou. Did you ever watch your dad coach? Oh, I did. Would it be fair to say of him as one of my great trumpet teachers of youth of my youth said to me um he taught me a lot very little about trumpet was it true of your dad he taught these boys a lot very little about football so a very quick story when i was mayor Does of the that city make sense Tempe, the way i'm going to give you that yeah. story okay so you know you I, I just wanted to get a cup of coffee and i'm driving my car to the quick trip quickly to get a cup of coffee it's early early in the morning And, you know, you're dressed, you're ready to go, just want that cup of coffee. And I see this elderly gentleman on a trike, a big trike, and I can tell he sees me. It's one of those moments. And it's, oh, cheapers, I just want a cup of coffee, and i got to be the mayor of the city. So i got the coat on, I shoot the cuffs as I'm heading toward that door, hoping I can make the door before he cuts me off. He cuts me off successfully, and I have to engage. And he says, aren't you the mayor of Tempe? Yes, sir, I am. And his response was, you're Lou Hallman's son. He was my football coach at Scottsdale High in 1952, the finest man I have ever known. He taught me more about being a good person than anybody in my life. And I think that answers your question. Yeah, there's another lesson in there, too, right? That being a coach or a teacher is going to be a much more important role than being the mayor of the city of Tempe. That's also, I learned, being the headmaster for Lou and Eli. Also, but about prejudging an encounter. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we've all done it. Yep. All right. Now shall we turn to Lewis? I think Lewis gets to take us off on uh, in the moment we have left to set the stage <laughs> for the rest of the hour. We're fine. We're fine. So uh, I, I hate to tear us away from, from heartfelt family commentary <laughs> to your f- the dismal science <laughs> and uh, political drudgery and real politic and all of these other horrible things that I talk about. Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I'm going to torture you with it, Seth. Okay. Uh, so and everyone else, look. and everyone else yeah. that has the misfortune of listening to this. Uh, so we we actually opened the show with with, with that notion: uh, may you live in interesting times. That uh, the old sort of Chinese precept, and it is that antagonist that I'd like to spend our time together today discussing China and 
what it's doing, what it wants, and how the military environment is changing in the 21st century compared to the 20th century. So the first thing that you will note looking at China, obviously, is that it is a manpower-based military. It has traditionally always been that way, where we have oodles and oodles and oodles of people. And that was commonly the, the, the notion of the People's Liberation Army really through about 1990, that it really it's just sort of the, the hordes over there, not a lot of capital, not a lot of know-how, not a lot of equipment, with their last expeditionary uh, ventures again in Vietnam in 1979, which they lost. Uh, so, so not a glorious record here. And what we've been doing over the last 30 years or so is watching the steady evolution of the Chinese state as its markets open uh, somewhat and its uh, economy first gave the impression of liberalizing and then started to close again around the 2010s. And we've been seeing sort of the parallel growth of that military alongside it as the society becomes capital rich, as it is able to uh, get a first a, a really good domestic small arms base, then moving into heavier military hardware like tanks. And now finally, where it is uh, even in some areas uh, doing remarkably well in areas like hypersonics and uh, mid-range ballistic missiles, those types of things. And so we see a, a, an increasingly sophisticated adversary. And it's, it's one that is giving pause and concern to, I think, a lot of people uh, in, in the United States uh, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, military conflict in this way, particularly with a nuclear armed state, uh, is always an existential concern, um, even though uh, our, our recent military history has not been against a near-peer adversary. World War II and the First World War are still, I think, fresh enough in our memories, uh, even though they are fading rapidly from living memory, that uh, we still react to them with some trepidation and horror. And so I think a lot of the concern and the confusion comes from the very rapid evolution of military systems and, and technologies, the fact that it is very, very difficult to keep track of and, and track of all of these things. And so as we come back after the break, I'd like to keep our attention fixed on the Chinese adversary and how their, their system has evolved and what is different now about them than the 1990s manpower, manpower, manpower foe that we're used to facing. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Lewis Hallman and along with Hugh Hallman. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. By the way, Hugh and Lewis, I haven't seen you together since last week. Thank you for manning the show uh, in my stead last week. Much appreciated. I think we did a fabulous I, job. So, uh, so I heard the clarion that's what box call office that, uh, returns are telling. Exactly, exactly. Lewis, you are unfolding a discussion on military and U.S. and China. Absolutely. So we were discussing in the last segment uh, China as a rising military power and the, the, the trepidation that it sort of uh, brings uh, U.S. citizens and analysts uh, alike. And I want to start unpacking this by talking about uh, sort of the core problem at the center of Chinese military strategy. China is uh, not only in a position where they have to deter aggression and maintain their borders from uh, 23 land borders stretching some 24,000 kilometers or about 15,000 miles, if my math is right, 
Um, it also then has sea borders of about 12,000 miles, another 20,000-ish kilometers, give or take. And it does. It has this, not in the friendly backyard neighborhood of the United States, where we are surrounded graciously by Canada, Mexico, fish and fish, which is about as non-threatening as it is possible for, for a, a neighborhood on this planet to be. Uh, Australia may beat us out, but other than that. New Zealand, fish, possibly. Fish, fish, fish. Right. You know, that's a pretty good neighborhood. But uh, <laughs> China, by contrast, has such uh, doting and stable neighbors as North Korea, Afghanistan, and Russia. So not, not exactly a friendly crowd here. And historically, China has only really been able to be unified uh, as a stable nation state for probably three centuries out of the past 3,000 years. Most of the time, it has been an interceding warlordism and imperial rule turned completely inward. This is, in fact, the only period in Chinese history where it has been able to penetrate what's called the first island chain, which is what we hear a lot of, of sort of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth about in the in the South China Sea. Um, China historically has not been able to extend its reach past those borders. It has been uh, sort of locked in its geography for much of human history. This is why, if we turn our attention back through history, if you think about its role in the Second World War, despite its amazing population and resources, because it was so vulnerable to all of its neighbors and unable to develop centralized governmental systems, it spent pretty much all of human history flat on its back. And so this is a nation state with, in some sense, a geopolitical chip on its shoulder that, that very much sees itself as having to make up for what it describes as the century of humi humiliation, which is when, uh, uh, from the, the 1900s to the founding of the Communist Party in the end of World War II, uh, uh, 1947, China really uh, uh, saw itself as trampled upon by, by Western powers. And the Japanese. And the Japanese, yes, uh, who, who then were a westernizing power, I should say. Uh, Western institutional powers, let's, let's call it. And so now we, we have this, this, this modern Chinese foe, which retains its tremendous advantage in numbers and is increasingly capitalizing itself, but again is in that very difficult security environment. And so... We're now left in a world where we have had uh, uh, generals in the U.S. predict invasions of Taiwan potentially by 2027 and, and other sort of uh, disaster scenarios. Now, I, I don't want to beat around the bush. You know, these are, these are, these are a possibility. Um, I don't think that they would be wise. I don't think that they are particularly likely. But as, as we've discussed, you know, extensively, uh, probably for about the last year, Xi Jinping is, has consolidated more power unto himself than probably any autocrat in the history of humanity and is now isolated himself from uh, decision makers. And so military rationale may play a second fiddle to uh, ideals of national sovereignty or, or other uh, uh, more sectarian type issues here, which is something that we, we should keep in mind. What I'd like to point out, though, and where I think uh, uh, the lead that I've been really diligently burying for the last five minutes is that while there is a lot to be concerned about and a lot to monitor, I think rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. I think that the U.S. is in a, a larger position of strength. And I think that uh, in some sense, the doctrines that we think about 
uh, and the public consciousness that we have of our own national defense is a very 20th century concept in that while much of this is not public and, and some of this would be my own speculation, I think that we are adapting rapidly a new 21st century way of war in the U.S. that hasn't yet been unleashed, but should conflict with China be unleashed, that we will rapidly begin deploying. So let me let me unpack that a little bit. Um, this new American way of war is very much a precision door-kicking style of warfare. It is an emphasis on special operations, our carrier battle groups, uh, high strike, low operational staying power. I think that, that our experience in the forever wars of the Middle East have shown us that Marshall Plan style nation building is uh, uh, not something that is a tabula rasa blank slate. It's not something that you can do in any society. And instead, it's something that was culturally dependent on the German and Japanese systems having those exact sort of Western style uh, uh, systems that, that yep. then made them receptive. I would have said cultures. Fair enough. Institutional systems, I think, is probably what, I'm, what, I, what I was looking for. Um, and so that, that then means that we're probably not going to run an occupation you know, style military in the same way that we did in Iraq and Afghanistan recently. We I, I tried ex- both times and not done very well. Exactly. And so I, I would anticipate in the future something that looks much more like Operation Desert Storm, emphasizing, again, rapid deployment of assets, the use of our strike groups and our special operations bases, as well as, and I think this is the real 21st century twist, cyber and space assets. Much of China's uh, emerging technologies, its advantages in in uh, ballistic missiles and the like will depend entirely on a network of space systems and satellites, all of which we are currently pointing multiple missiles at. Uh, the Chinese made a show uh, of launching a spy satellite uh, in about 2021, and rather than countering the spy satellite itself, the U.S. destroyed one of its own satellites uh, in order to send the message, yes, we know you can send things up and we can actually destroy any of our own things at any time and yours. And so my anticipation would be day one of a conflict, the U.S. will probably be blackening orbit with shrapnel in an effort to expunge every trace of Chinese telecommunications uh, 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 platform from space. How um, convinced are you that the United States has the superior ability over the Communist Chinese Party to do that rather than the reverse? So uh, I'm fairly convinced... I look at things like the the differences in avionics from our our plane systems and our, our, our missile systems that are comparable. The gap in intermediate ballistic uh, missiles is not a technological one. It was a treaty one that the U.S. had with Russia that the Russians then broke and obviated with the attack on Ukraine. We are actually no longer bound by that treaty and are, in fact, rapidly making up ground in those areas. I, I would say let's touch on what we did in the show together and bring Seth up to speed on the stuff we talked about regarding uh, the sort of crucial spy technology that's been going on that, uh, that at least in our analysis, applies. I think that would be a great idea. When we come back, let's cover uh, uh, the additional cyber ops piece and tie that in a bow with uh, Chinese military activity. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman are my guests. We are coming to you from the 960 Patriot Studio, brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Lewis Holman, please continue. 
Fantastic. I gotta say, David, I, lo I love the bumper music. I'm about waiting for you to play. Uh, I don't want to set the world on fire for me here pretty soon. Yeah, or it's the end, end of, of the world quest. as we know it. <laughs> uh, you know, it might be. Anyway. We're on the eve of destruction by Barry Maguire. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, some love song, Breaking One's Heart, something like that, maybe for the bumper music. Oh, well, we did some Elton John. I think we played that yesterday. Now we can always reprise it. All right, Lewis, sorry, go ahead. So, reprise so or reprise? We were talking, I, I believe, Lewis, about... is it reprise or reprise? Uh, reprise, I think. We can ask Eli, is it Eli, reprise is or reprise? Eli, is it reprise or reprise? I I believe I'm really right on this, though. I, I'm with Eli. and you Three Holmans against one Leapson. I'm going to look it up. Continue, right, Lewis. Good odds. Good odds. All right. Uh, so <laughs> we, we were talking uh, before the break about uh, the, the uh, Chinese and American military matchup, the anxiety that it causes, and the changing American way of war in the 21st century, mm -hmm. focusing more on the first strike doctrine and away from sort of that 2C strategy, more occupational uh, uh, strategy that we'd seen popularized in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, we, we also covered the notion that uh, the gaps in American and Chinese missile technology are not due to technological differences or any technological superiority on behalf of the Chinese, but by treaty restrictions self-imposed by the U.S. Uh, in a bilateral agreement between ourselves and Russia, which has since been broken and voided and again, we are catching up on that, that, that technology rapidly. So not, not a major concern. I'd like to turn our attention, though, rather than to space and the missile side of things, to the cyber side. Now, this is a really nebulous, not well understood area. Uh, this, this is one that can be very easy uh, to dramatize. You know, you can look at, at uh, some of the newer diehard movies and get a very, very strange sense of what might be possible that is not at all grounded in reality. Uh, and so on the cyber side, um, you know, China is is uh, perpetually uh, probing our infrastructure, civilian and military, uh, with a particular emphasis on uh, intellectual property theft and the reverse engineering of technology. Again, as part of that capital acquisition phase, its military is going through dead. You've got something? Yeah, we were raising this because it was only 10 days ago that – uh, the director of the FBI was reporting right. to Congress about what a terrible position we're in uh, as part of his budget pitch to make sure we give the FBI more money uh, because the FBI has soiled its credentials uh, in current political circumstances, having investigated the uh, president, uh, former president about uh, Russia, getting itself involved in all those kinds of problems, uh, and arguably a, a, a differential standard uh, when investigating one uh, former president about uh, documents, uh, confidential and, and top secret documents, and, uh, and a former vice president. All of that caused the FBI to have to show up to Congress to beg for more money and set the table to say we're in this terrible condition uh, in cyber ops, and here's Lewis's thought. Right. And, and so we, we have this kind of breathless panic that's put out by the media every time that there is a, a, a cyber attack or a probe that reveals some weakness. Uh, and, and there's this notion that we are totally defenseless to the, the fiendish machinations of the Chinese or the North Korean hackers or the Russian hackers. And there's almost this, this sort of shadow assertion that accompanies these news stories all of the time, which is, what is the U.S. doing on its cyber front? Because you never hear anything about it. And the reason that you never hear anything about it is because we, we employ a very different strategy for our cyber forces than do Russia or China, who are coming from behind and, and necessarily have to deploy those activities to keep things up. Um, what we do instead is we are constantly probing our enemies uh, and adversaries' systems, and we are 
just cataloging all of their credentials continuously, but we are not attacking... Passwords and secret doors, how you get into their systems. Correct. We are not, however, attacking or disrupting those systems. Instead, we're just keeping the big old list of credentials such that... On day one, when a, when a war or conflict starts, we can root through every system that they have, overturn everything, and disrupt every system we can get our hands on, military, commercial, uh, uh, communications, what have you. And in contrast, the Chinese have tested our systems but disclosed, because they you know, create problems for us, disclosed the technology they're using to attack us and help us improve our defenses against that. Right. A powerful first mover can afford to be secret and static with defenses. A desperate second comer has to be on the tactical offense continually in order to try to close the gap. And that is exactly the behavior that we see from China. Their game theory should assuage your fears. Oh, there it is for you. Yesterday. I wouldn't if I tried. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wow. No, 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 no. What are you doing? David, baby, oh, you're not that kind. Where are you getting? Yeah. What? What is this? Just take a listen. But don't go breaking my heart. No. <laughs> you put the spark to my flame. No, 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 no. Did you surreptitiously taste? This is a theme in the state of Arizona. Surreptitiously taping. I was singing this in studio yesterday to myself. Of course, you were singing. And you put this together. And here, I thought you were singing that to Jeff Dewitt. And he carefully recorded you in order to make fun of your... He set this up. That has got to be a Jeff DeWitt move. All right, enough of that. I think we got to... Yeah, I agree. Enough of it, because I can't hear him grinding on the notes there. You really... you. The best you can do is carrying a tune in a bucket. I was just paying attention to my... A five-gallon paint pump. I was just minding my own business singing songs to myself. Indeed. So I'm going to use this as actually a quick little chance because there was so much surreptitious taping. There was so much controversy over Carrie Lake surreptitiously taping Jeff DeWitt. Uh And I thought this was (laughs) an interesting interesting, uh, comment very quickly. So um, it only took 10 years for the truth to come out because I, of course, am a failed candidate in the 2014 uh, treasurer's race. And it was Mr. DeWitt who beat me. Uh, it was a three-way race with Randy Pullen, who had been the chairman of the state Republican Party, and he came in third, I'm happy to say. Um, but what I found interesting about that race, as I tried to explain to people during the time, but the press didn't cover it, is he was revealing the kind of character he he is, that is, Jeff DeWitt was. Uh, so Ms. Lake ends up recording him, I suspect, to protect herself, given the kinds of machinations that Mr. DeWitt engages in, and he certainly did in the 14 race. He recorded almost every speech I ever gave. I once described, when asked a question at a, at a West Side event, why is it I was interested in the kinds of things the treasurer did, trading stocks and, and advancing the state's cause? in its finances. And I explained that I had been a newspaper boy since I was age nine and saved all of my newspaper money, deposited in a bank. And my father then taught me how to read the stock pages well and helped me invest my money in stocks. Two weeks later, Jeff DeWitt told that very story, having recorded my version of it Mm. as his own. Mm. That was just one example. Another example was my headquarters kept getting phone calls uh, about the fact that there were campaign signs, that my campaign signs were uh, blocking Mr. DeWitt's campaign signs. And I sent somebody out to figure out where this sign was, took care of it. It kept happening. 
Finally, I went out myself with a longtime colleague to go figure out what on earth is going on out in Mesa that we have a number of these things and came upon a sign where my sign was a full three inches in front of his sign directly in front of it. Bizarre. We got to the location. It's uh, at a gas station, and the signs are over a fence. So we're looking over the fence, end up coming around, and literally pull down my sign. T-posts, which are big, heavy metal posts that you drive into the ground with post pounders. The only way to do it, and especially the Arizona uh, uh, dry soils. We pull it down so that his sign is left alone. Magically, there are photographs and video of me and my colleague pulling this sign down. Except what do they do? They reverse the video so it looks like we're shoving the sign up. Now, of course, how you jam T-posts into the ground with your bare hands to stand a sign up is beyond me. But Mr. DeWitt's campaign circulated that. How magically did phone calls come into my head, uh, my campaign headquarters calling out these various problems until I go out to investigate myself and somebody's there taking photographs and videotapes? Mr. DeWitt was that kind of person then, and I can imagine why Carrie Lake wanted to protect herself now. And what did we learn? That he said all kinds of excoriating things about Donald Trump, whom he said was his hero, that it was his candidate. And in the tape, he says that he doesn't think Trump can win, among other things. That is Jeff DeWitt in spades. And that's what people need to know, that Carrie Lake, in my view, was protecting herself when engaging in a conversation with somebody with that kind of background. Unclean hands doctrine, one might say. Uh, yes, in, indeed. Unclean hands and unclean mind and unclean heart. Let's go on. When, so Lewis was giving us some good stuff, and I digressed because thank you, young David, for that beautiful rendition of uh, Don't Go Breaking go My Heart. Don't mention it, Hugh. Please oh, do. Please do. Please. Just to, to put on what you were saying, I, it's my personal opinion that one need not deal with a snake honorably, uh, but that, that would just be my personal that's a, that's position. That's a good answer, yeah. Anyway, so we were talking uh, about a dragon, <laughs> about a dragon. As it happens, you are you are not wrong. Uh, we were talking about uh, China and the the current state of military affairs vis a vis the United States. Um, so largely, we we've talked about this notion of a, the U.S.'s shifting strategy to more of a first strike strategy. Again, emphasizing special operations and. Uh, uh, space and cyber asset denial, principally. Now, what may happen, frankly, uh, uh, is an invasion of, of Taiwan. This, this may come to pass. I, I certainly can't see the future, and I don't know of anyone else who can either, uh, nor do I have any, any special claim on what Xi Jinping is, is thinking. Um, but should such a scenario come to pass... I would note that the Chinese face a radically more difficult invasion scenario than did Vladimir Putin. And they have spent the last two years watching in ever-increasing shock and horror at what they expected to be the rollover of the Ukrainian forces now having uh, dragged on into, I believe, its third year of conflict. Starting. And so uh, while... uh, uh, China may be uh, ambitious. I, I don't think that they are foolhardy. And now that we've seen the logistical problems inherent in even trying to run tanks 40 miles to Kiev, I think that uh, uh, the notion of transporting those tanks on boats across the Taiwan Strait while under fire from uh, shore-based batteries, missiles, and uh, Taiwanese allies in the form of Japan, South Korea, the U.S., uh, India, and Australia— 
would be a, a, a challenging operational environment. Because another big, big caveat, another big piece that we should consider when thinking about this war is that the U.S., this hypothetical war, I should say, is that the U.S. didn't have a formal uh, uh, commitment to defend Ukraine. Now, we had guaranteed their sovereignty with Russia, but we did not treat them as a specific ally in the NATO sense where we had a defensive alliance. Yeah, you did add uh, India to your list of friends for Taiwan. And given India's performance with the Russia in Ukraine battle, I'm not sure that they're reliable. So, but there are others. India uh, takes a very different dichotomous view vis-a-vis Russia. India uh, uh, really plays the U.S. And, and Russia sort of against one another and has historically done that all throughout the Cold War. China is a land border with India and the two's relationships is nowhere, is not at all comparable, I would argue, to the Russian one. We're, Although, you know, someone with, who is more tuned in might find very valid reason to disagree with me on this. Where do you, and maybe we'll save this for uh, you to wrap it up in the next uh, last final segment, the final segment, this question, because it's it's been on my mind um, for some time now, and, and especially over the last 45 minutes. What do you do with the fact or the equation that China has Xi Jinping and Russia has P- Putin and we have Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and no Secretary of Defense? How does that measure into this equation? Can we come back on that? I'd love to. There's nobody show. I gave you my heart. I gave you my heart. So don't go breaking my heart. So don't go breaking my heart. So don't go breaking my heart. All right, let's call Brandon. Okay, we're very confused. We're awake, but we're very confused here. Welcome back. Lou Holman, Louis Holman, uh, thank you for that. Um, so my question is, uh, China has Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin is uh, – Russia has Vladimir Putin – and we have uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and no Secretary of Defense as of uh, this uh, this taping or recording or radio show. Um, and how does that play into this equation? Well, there, there's sort of this. There's a an easy you, notion. You can, by the way, sorry, I'm sorry. You could you could take the element of Biden and Harris and Austin out of this with any American I'm leaving leader. Him. No, no, we're, 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 no, but really any American leader, because there is a point in difference of wills, regardless of the American leadership. Well, there, there's actually two points here. There's a succession issue in that our strategic leadership changes every four years, resulting in a level of instability that an autocratic system doesn't have to deal with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we can get out uh, insane madmen with bad ideas. And so, you know, the, the obvious red meat answer is, you know, Joe Biden is old and over the hill. Uh, you know, he's an octogenarian and shouldn't be leading anyone's military or nuclear weapons. However, I would point out both Xi Jinping and Putin are themselves septuagenarians who are no spring chickens either. They are not far behind. They are not democratically accountable. And we have no me- they have no mechanism. Okay, to but be now removed. shift to will. Now shift to will. OK. Do they do they have a will to power that is categorically different or greater than Joe Biden. Or any American president. Or any American president. It's not obvious to me that they do, right? That they, you know, that they succeed and are ruthless in their own system is fair. But I will say Joe Biden has had a will to power since he's 27 years old, right? That he's been in in, in Washington. So it's not obvious to me that, like, he is any less 
power hungry in that sense. Whether power hungriness translates to strategic clarity of vision is, I think, another matter entirely. But even on that front, I think we have decent news. You know, the Joint Chiefs are their own organization. They're not beholden to to, uh, Biden in the same way that Putin's uh, dozen cronies would be or Xi Jinping's ever in- decreasing pool of generals that he is currently liquidating Stalin style. Let me, there, let me, are, there is an institutional resilience to our military and, and the way that our chief executive communicates with it that I think is bereft in, in these autocratic uh, uh, systems. So George W. Bush had a lot of will on behalf of defending the country and propagating the war that we did engage in. It wasn't the same will that Saddam Hussein could have had or would have had had he the power that he said he had. It wasn't the same will that bin Laden and the Taliban had, and Hamas versus Israel, but Netanyahu has a lot of will, but not the kind of will that keeps him, uh, that, that, that allows him to accelerate a carpet bombing without, uh, you know, without, with, without hesitation or any restraint whatsoever. And I think maybe next week we might pick up a little bit on that. Well, and we also touched on it in the first hour with respect to the president's current condition. So Correct. anybody who wants to hear this come full circle, listen to the first hour, your monologue, which was brilliant, talking about exactly those issues. Well, bless you all, gentlemen, and welcome to the third Holman. It's great to have you here, Eli. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 